Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal, sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Raji, for reading God's word to us. And welcome again to all of you who have gathered with us to worship. Um, if you're visiting with us, if you're visiting family, we are, we're really, really grateful to have you here with us. If, uh, if you are able, we would love to see you on Friday night. Good Friday. We'll be right here in this building at 7.30. We're going to be uh, reading God's Word. We're going to be singing. We're going to be praying. And we're going to be remembering our crucified Savior together. Um, it's, it's always, a, a, really, it's always a, a really beautiful service, actually. Um, at least I, I feel like it is. And it's always very impactful and helpful for me to be here with my family. And so I would love for you to join in on that experience if you can on, on Friday. But before we jump into God's word, I'm going to invite you to pray with me now. Oh, God, we come to your word expecting that you will do something in us. We expect, because we know that your word is powerful and we know that you are powerful, we expect and we hope and we ask that you would bring transformation whether it's a transformation of perspective, a transformation of our affections and our loves, our goals, transform the way we see ourselves, transform the way we see you, O Lord. We ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. In the the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those are the opening words of the story that we will immerse ourselves in for the next few months or so. This is a story we're going to read together. It's, and, and, but of course, stories come in different forms. This particular story is a historical record. A historical record of the life of a Jewish rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this account of Jesus' life doesn't tell us everything about him. It doesn't tell us about his whole life. The author skips over Jesus' childhood. He skips over Jesus' lineage. There, there are four records of Jesus' life in the Bible, and those details are, are recorded in, in two of the, the other records. But the Gospel of Mark happened to have been written 
earlier than the other Gospels. It's the, it's the earliest of the four. It was written somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D. So that means that up until that point, from the point that Jesus died to for the next 30 years or so, what people had were not written accounts of Jesus' life. What they had were oral records, oral traditions passed on. For 30 years after Jesus' death, there was no written accounts. The details of his life were passed on from person to person verbally throughout Palestine, throughout other regions, as people who had known Jesus traveled. And the details of his life, although they were passed around verbally, they could be verified. They could be verified by living eyewitnesses. I'll give you an example of what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he's writing about 20 years after Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. He's talking about the fact that this Jewish rabbi didn't just die on a, on a cross, but he actually rose from the dead. Again, this is 20 years after the fact. And the Apostle Paul, to, to, to lend credence and support for what he's claiming, he's, he says he starts listing names of people who actually saw Jesus face to face after his resurrection. And, and then he says, he says, this Jesus who rose from the grave also appeared to more than 500 people at once. And in case you might hear that and say, did he really appear to 500 people at once, really? Paul says this. He says, he says if you really want to fact check me, go ask these folks because a bunch of them are still alive. Most of them, in fact, are still alive. So you can go ask them. Just ask some of the hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Jesus, some of whom saw him die and then saw him walk and speak, and teach again. You see, the details of Jesus' life, all that he did, all that he said, they could be confirmed by these living eyewitnesses. So if someone in that region, for instance, were to, were to make up stories about Jesus, as we know humans are prone to do, other witnesses could say, wait a second, that's not true. Nope, 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 that never happened. I was there. I lived there. I lived in Capernaum. But as time passed on, of course, what happens is that many of those eyewitnesses would eventually die off, wouldn't they? And so would Jesus' closest disciples. They would, they would eventually start to die off too. And so in order to preserve the facts of Jesus' life, in order to, to prevent fake stories from being circulated and passed off as true, eventually it became very important to have a written record. It was important for those living witnesses to get their stories on parchment, get them recorded, make sure they were written down. So that's why we have the Gospel of Mark. And that's why later on we'd get the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and John. These different records of Christ's life that, that cover some of the same ground, there's overlap, but they're also very different from one another. Each one reflects the, the sensibilities, the, the writing style of its particular author, it reflects the emphasis of, of uh, each particular author. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John were written from Matthew and John's firsthand experience because they were disciples of Jesus. They lived and walked with him for years. And so those, over those three years, they, they took all that they had learned from being around Jesus and seeing him, and they recorded it for us. And the Lord's preserved it for us. 
But then the Gospels of Luke and Mark, they were not firsthand witnesses of Christ. That is, they may have been, but they certainly weren't disciples that walked alongside him for three years. And so Mark and Luke, they wrote their records based on information that they collected from witnesses. In fact, in Mark's case, Mark most likely based his account, which we're going to be studying over these months, his account is most likely based on the witness, the firsthand witness, of Peter, who shows up. You might notice as you read through Mark, you're going to see Peter shows up a lot. So today we're just going to begin Mark's account, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. My goal today is just to introduce it, to give us a sense of what it's all about, And what we're going to find over the next several months is that Mark is a very direct storyteller. His account of Jesus' life is the shortest of all the Gospels, of the four. He writes, as we're going to see, in a a series of of kind of short uh, uh, scenes, vignettes, right? These these short, uh, uh, punchy kind of like like dramatic scenes. And each one follows quickly, one on the next, one on on the other. So, So, for instance... Jesus, we'll see Jesus interacting with his disciples or, 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 or in fact, interacting with his enemies or other folks. And he's engaging in these, these, these face-to-face conversations, uh, these encounters. Sometimes they're confrontations. And then, and then the Mark will say, as soon as the event is over, you'll say, immediately Jesus moved on to such and such a place and did such and such a thing. Mark's gospel is the most action-packed of all the gospels. He, he, he'll describe this amazing event and then say, immediately Jesus left. And he did such and such a thing. Another amazing thing. And the action keeps moving that way. Because that's his style. And so because that's Mark's style and he is so direct, he begins quickly, right? He gets right into the gospel. He says, he starts his account and he immediately gets to the point. He tells us exactly what this story is all about and he does it in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want us to ask two questions today. What does Mark mean by the gospel of Jesus Christ and what does that mean for us? What does he mean by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what does that mean for you, for me? And and the reason I want to ask those questions is because it's it's key not only for us to understand the the scope of of what Mark calls the gospel, to understand the, the, the purpose of that gospel, of this story, but it's also important for us to understand our place in this story, the relevance of this story for us and how our lives fit into that story. And you will see that we do have a place in this story. So the first question, what does Mark mean by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Literally, that word gospel means good news. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news concerning Jesus. Mark wrote this in Greek, and the word for gospel is the word euangelion. It's a strange word, but it's kind of fun to say if you try. Euangelion, it's a word from which we get evangelize or evangelical or evangelism. But gospel, euangelion, means news. But it's not just any news. It's big news, important news. It's not just gossip, right? Uh, Spreading the gospel to a Greek person was more than just, uh, what do they say, spilling the tea? Do people still say that? I don't know. But it's more than just just, just sharing some novelties, some interesting information. No, the gospel was a proclamation. It was a sharing of big news. 
big news that brings great joy, great impact. Now, when you and I hear the word gospel, especially if we've been uh, in church uh, for a long time, when we hear gospel, our minds immediately associate it with something spiritual or something religious. But that would not have been the case for a first century uh, person in Mark's culture. In Mark's day, folks would associate the word gospel not with religion or spirituality, they would associate it with something political, national, or international. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, and really from the Greco-Roman uh, time, really expanding, you know, from the time of Alexander the Great all the way into the time of the Roman Empire, the, the word gospel referred to, to history-making news, world-shaping news, news of Victory, national victory, political victory, victory in battle. So I'll give you an example of how gospel would have been used in Mark's day, or even way before that, frankly, as well. In 490 B.C., Greece was invaded by Persia. What ensued was what's been called the Battle of Marathon. The, 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 the Greeks managed to defend themselves. They fought off the Persian, Persian uh, 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 armies. They defended their nation. And then after that, and all the fighting was done, they sent out heralds, they sent out messengers to take the euangelion, to, to proclaim this news, this good news, that Greece was once again safe. And so those heralds went into every town and all these villages in the country to tell people what had happened and to say, peace, we've achieved peace, we are free, the Persians are gone. Euangelion. Big news impactful, history-shaping news. I'll give you another example. In Turkey, there was a, an inscription that was found on a government building. I'll show you an image of this. This is dating back to 6 BC. This inscription on a building says this. It says, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the euangelion, the gospel concerning him. What, what, what's happening here is that some kind of historian or, or, or propaganda writer, I'm not sure, is, 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 is recording the birth of Caesar Augustus and is telling us this is gospel. This is big news. Why? You see, the birth of Caesar Augustus was looked at as, as so important, so history-shaping, that it was considered the beginning of the, the, the gospel of Augustus. That inscription, it calls him a god. It calls him divine. It goes on to say, we should consider his birth equal to, quote, the beginning of all things. It's as if for, for the Roman Empire, the, the, the birth of Augustus was a beginning of a whole new epoch. Quote, for when everything was falling into disorder, he, Augustus, restored it once more. You see, Caesar Augustus would, would usher in the season of peace, sometimes we call it the Pax Romana, right? The season of prosperity and peace for the empire. And it was so great, it was so important that the, his story was considered the gospel. So here's why I'm sharing all that. Because when Mark writes the story of Jesus and he uses that word, he's intentionally contrasting. He, he wants to hold up the life of Jesus against all these other gospels. Because when Mark writes his account, he's still... The, He's under Roman rule, and the people that he's writing to are still under Roman rule. Caesar Augustus was long dead, but, but now Emperor Nero was in power, and Emperor Nero was ruling with an iron fist. He, 
empire was still exerting control. In fact, under Nero, the empire was killing followers of Jesus. Under the rule of Nero, the empire was setting fire to followers of Jesus, feeding them to animals for public entertainment. So, so, when, so, so when Mark writes this story, and he starts this story, he wants Jesus' followers, and he wants anyone else who's going to read this to know something, that, that Jesus is the true divine king, not Augustus. He wants everyone who reads this to, 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 to know Jesus is the true king who's bringing true salvation to the world, who's bringing true lasting peace and prosperity so you see, this is, this is a direct, explicit challenge to the so-called gospel of Rome. With all of its brutality and oppression. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of victory, but a different kind of victory. It's a message of victory that brings real salvation, that brings real freedom, that brings real peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the announcement of a monumental, history-shaping turn of events that makes the birth of Caesar or the Battle of Marathon look cute, minuscule. Because look at who Jesus of Nazareth is, the one who sits at the, the center of this gospel. Look at what Mark calls him. Mark, in verse 1, doesn't call him. He doesn't say, this is the gospel of Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Remember when we were reading from Matthew 21 earlier today in the call to worship, we saw the crowds welcome Jesus into Jerusalem and, and, and when asked, who is this guy? They said, he's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And that's true, but like I said, that, but that's an understatement. Mark sees the true identity of this prophet from a little town in the region of Galilee. He says, no, no, no. He doesn't even call him Jesus of Nazareth, which is the normal way to refer to someone, where they're from. He didn't say Jesus, the son of Joseph. No, he says Jesus Christ, the son of God. Hmm. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Do we all know that? I want to make sure that everyone knows that, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. Jesus Christos, Christos, Christ. It means the anointed king the chosen anointed king, the long-awaited promised Messiah. And unlike kings like Augustus that were called sons of God, little s, little g, this is the true son of God, capital S, capital G, the true son of God, the only one who really can legitimately lay claim to that name. And this gospel in its simplest sense, the gospel is simply this. It's the news concerning him. It's the news, the monumental, history-shaping news concerning Jesus. All of the news about him. Everything that we know about Jesus is part of that gospel. Everything he ever said, everything he ever did, every detail of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his future return, all of that is enfolded into this one word, euangelion, the big news. 
Now, for some of us, I, I think that the gospel can, can become small. Like, we can, we can shrink it. For instance, when, I, when, when you hear the gospel, you, you might think, that, that's the news. That's the news that Jesus died for my sins. That's the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for your sins. And that's true, isn't it? That is the gospel. But the gospel is much, much bigger than that. Much, much bigger. That's a minuscule gospel. That's a piece of the gospel. That's one facet of, 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 of an extremely glorious reality. He didn't just die for your sins, although he did. He died to conquer the forces of evil and death. He died to reconcile fallen humanity to its creator. He died to rescue all of creation from the corrupting power of sin and death and the curse. He didn't just die so that you can go to heaven. <laughs> that, that's that kind of like truncated, shrunk, like John 3.16 gospel, right? We think God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him not perish but have eternal life. That's a, that's a true statement. And yet it's one facet of a bigger gospel. It's not the whole story. And, and, and when we re start to realize that this, and, and, and we realize that the, the, this gospel, this story, is not a, it's not just about you getting a ticket to heaven if you believe in Jesus. It's bigger than that story, and it's bigger than you. <laughs> it's bigger than your salvation. <laughs> now, now, that's not to say that we don't have a place in this gospel. We do. But I think that we, we, will, we will come to love this gospel and appreciate it and marvel at it more if we realize that we're not at the center of it. That my salvation is just a piece of it. For many of us, when we hear gospel, we immediately think of the cross. We think of the crucifixion, which makes sense too. And we're going to be, on Friday night, the goal is to really focus on the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, his death, public, brutal, substitutionary, a sacrifice that atoned for the sins of his people. When we think the gospel, some of us, we think right about the, we go, our mind goes right to the cross. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Because the cross can be thought of as the kind of the, the center, the, the fulcrum, the, the heart of the story of Jesus. Things culminate at the cross. It's where everything else about the gospel hinges on that cross and what he did there. In the New Testament, apostles like Paul will at times summarize the whole gospel, this big message, they'll summarize it as, quote, the word of the cross. The message of the cross. And when Paul says the message of the cross, he's talking about the whole big history-shaping monumental story, everything concerning Jesus, but he boils it down to the word of the cross. The apostle Paul once said to a congregation in Corinth, I, I, I chose to know nothing amongst you except for Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. That, that's a summary of the gospel. But, but we need to remember that it's just a summary. It's not the totality of the gospel. It's a summary of the gospel. And just like any other summary, it doesn't give you everything that you need to know. So when, when Mark starts this account, he says the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, and then he launches into, as we're going to see, many, many, many different scenes from Jesus' life. And what this seems to imply, more than imply, it really communicates to us that every detail that Mark records for us is part of the euangelion. 
including the cross, but not just the cross, including the resurrection, but not just that. Every single interaction that Jesus has, every word that he speaks, every miracle that he performs, it's all euangelion. It's all an announcement that the promised ruler has arrived. And he's ushering, he's he's establishing a a new beginning for humanity, a a new order, a, a new reality, a new kingdom, a new way of living under the rule of the world's rightful king. Yes, Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended and he will return. It's all part of the gospel and so is every other detail about his life. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel and then look at what, look at what he says in verse 2. This is interesting. In verse 2 he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Um, Mark is quoting from the Old Testament here. He's quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Exodus. He's kind of bringing these passages together. And here's what he's telling us. This great, big, expansive gospel that he's beginning to tell us about, it actually had its start way back in the history of ancient Israel. The, the Old Testament is a story of, of the Israelite people. Mark sees that as part of his account, as the beginning of his account. He sees his account as a continuation of that Old Testament story of this nation. So so he's saying the history of the Jewish people, the events that took place that are recorded for us in places like Exodus, the words of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, all that God was doing in in that, that time, it's part of the bigger story that God is writing. It's part of the gospel. This story, this news that would expand to envelop every nation, not just Israel, but every nation, every people group, the story that would reach its climax at the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his crucifixion and resurrection. So so back to the original question. What does Mark mean by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here's what he means. He means it's the good news concerning Jesus. Simple as that. But do we, do, hopefully we get a sense of the vastness of that news of Jesus. It extends way back into the earliest histories that we, the earliest history that we see in the Old Testament, and extends forward into eternity. The gospel is that big; it's everything about Jesus. The gospel. I'm going to give you a quote by Tim Keller. He says the gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler can wade and yet an elephant can swim. I like that. It, it, it's simple. It's the news of Jesus. It's the message of the cross. Those those simplifications are great. But also, it's so big and so deep and so wide that an elephant could swim in it, he says. It is both simple enough to tell a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. And I would say that the more we look into this news of Jesus, the more we'll see its relevance for us. And the more we will see its manifold implications for the whole world. The whole world. Last question we got to ask today is, is what, is, what, is, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? We saw what the gospel means to Mark. What does this mean? What does all this have to do? What does it mean for you? And, and 
And really, I'm just going to give you one thing that this gospel means for you and for me. Um, because really, as we go through this series and we look at the rest of the gospel of Mark, we're going to keep seeing more and more of what this gospel means for us. We're going to see more and more of its impact on our lives and its implications for the way that we um, exist. But right now, I just want to give you one thing, one thing. This story, this news of Jesus, gives meaning and purpose to your story. The story of Jesus and all that God planned and is purposed and is doing in Jesus gives meaning and purpose and hope to your story. Let's look at the rest of of our passage today, starting in verse 4. It's interesting that, that Mark starts by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, quotes from the Old Testament, You'd expect him to start talking about Jesus. Instead, what does he do? He starts talking about a guy named John. And look what he says. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He's an interesting fellow, isn't he, John? John himself is a fulfillment of prophecy. He was prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's a strange guy, wouldn't you say? He, He emerges mysteriously out of the wilderness, dressed in camel's hair. He likes to eat locusts and honey. That's strange. But not only is he kind of weird... He's a very big deal. Yeah, John was a real big deal. We don't have time to do it today, but, but if I could give you, um, a, 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 consider it homework, a, a project for, for this coming week. Uh, go to the Gospel of Luke and read in the early, uh, early sections of the Gospel of Luke, read about the story of John the Baptist, where he came from. His or, read his origin story. You'll find out that he's a, a cousin of Jesus, we also find out that his birth, his conception, was miraculous. He was born to a very, very old mother who was not fertile all th- through you know, almost all her life. Again, he was prophesied about. Now, you look at his story and you look at the details, you start to realize this is a significant figure. John is a, the arrival of John was huge in that story of what God was doing for his people, Israel, and for the world. The arrival of John was really significant. And at this point, as the Gospel of Mark opens, John is more famous than his cousin Jesus. Jesus isn't drawing a crowd here. John is. In fact, people were thinking that John might be the Messiah at this point. Some people thought that he was the anointed Christ the promised Savior. Others thought that he was a kind of reappearance of Moses. Other people thought that he was a, the return of Elijah. Some of us are in discipleship groups. We're, we're, we're studying uh, the life of Elijah. Um, spoiler alert, Elijah one day gets, gets taken away. He doesn't die. He gets taken away in a chariot. He disappears. And many people in Israel thought when John appeared, they said, that's Elijah. He's come back. 
Jesus even speaks of John the Baptist, because he comes, comes to be known as John the Baptist, calls him, uh, he says he has the spirit of Elijah in him. That is, he's, he has similar mission, a similar role to the great Elijah. In, in the history of Israel, there are no people more important than Moses and Elijah. They're significant figures. John the Baptist shows up, and he's like on par with those guys in the eyes of the nation. That's why it says the whole country is going out to be baptized by him. All of Judea, people are coming from everywhere to hear him speak and to be baptized by him. And we'll look next week at more what, what the significance of what that baptism meant. We're not going to look at that today. But look at what John says about himself. Or really, what he doesn't say about himself. In verse 7, And John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I I don't even, I, I, I can't even touch this man's sandals, he says. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wow. You know, throughout the Old Testament, there was only one, only one person could give the Holy Spirit to anyone. There's only one person that could send and fill a person with the Holy Spirit. Do you know who that person, who, who that is? It was only God. Only Yahweh. Only the Lord, the God of Israel, could ever send his spirit. John the Baptist saying, my cousin who's coming, he's mightier than me. In fact, that's an understatement. You're not getting it. He's so much mightier than me that as easily as I can put you in water and take you out, that's all I can do for you. But this one, this one can come and immerse you and fill you with the Spirit of God. He's saying he's Yahweh. He's the Lord God of Israel. And, and, and as we see the way John talks about himself and the way he talks about Jesus, you realize that 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 John really understood his role in this whole story. And he realized the story wasn't about him. You, you, um, you ever meet people who only talk about themselves? Maybe some of us, we, I, I find myself doing that too much. Like you start talking, and you're like, oh my goodness, this person doesn't care. Why am I talking so much about myself? You ever, you ever feel that way? Or like you're around people and you're like, I know this person's not going to ask me how I'm doing. They're just going to tell me all about themselves, their accomplishments, their whatever. It's kind of annoying, right? John's the opposite. He, it's like he almost refuses to talk about himself. <laughs> he gets a crowd of people, and he says, I'm going to tell you about the one who's coming after me, the one who later we'll see he calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because John understood his role in the story, and he realized that the story was much bigger than him. Notice that, that John defines himself in relation to Jesus. It's like Jesus is the sun at the middle of this universe. The rest of us, we're we're just orbiting him. He understands his own role and his own identity in relation to the one who's at the center, his cousin, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. I wonder if, if any of you ever feel like your life is like a movie and you're the star. You ever feel that way? I'm not saying your life is, a, is an action movie. Maybe it's not. 
Maybe, maybe it's a rom-com, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sad art film, I don't know. Maybe, maybe your life is a, is a boring movie. <laughs> you might feel like it's a lame story. But for better or worse, you feel like you're at the center of that story. Your experiences, your plans, your role, everything else revolves around you. Everything else revolves around you. Now, you might agree that that's a sad way to live, and I think it is, but it's a very natural way for, for us to live, to understand others in relation to ourselves. But it's, it is a sad way to live, isn't it? And so we might think, oh, what's, what's the alternative? What, what, is there a better way to live than that? And some of us, what we might do is rather than put ourselves at the center, we'll put other people at the center person you love, or, or a group that you really want to be accepted by, that you really want to be a part of, that you really want to fit in with. You, you make someone else or some other people the center that you orbit around. And, and, and basically, it's like you're saying, I just want to be a part of your movie. Your movie looks cool. Your life looks awesome. I just want to be a part of it. Accept me into it. Let me be your friend. Let me, let me be a part of your, part of your world. That's not a very healthy way to live either, is it? In fact, it's a very risky way to live. It's very dangerous. No one is worthy of being the center of your life. Some of us have learned that the hard way. I read just this week about a young teen in Georgia, 19 years old. Maybe you've heard this story. He was hanging out with his quote-unquote friends, ended up in an emergency room, and then later ended up in ICU. You see, his quote-unquote friends beat him. They forced him to drink alcohol, so much alcohol that his heart almost stopped beating. They defecated on him. They urinated on him. They spray-painted him. And then when he almost seemed like he was dying, they, they panicked and dropped him off at the emergency room. And the, 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 as sad as the story is, and as horrific as the images were, what I found most tragic was what his father said. His father said to reporters, this wasn't the first time that they had abused and humiliated his son this way. He was a nice guy who just wanted to fit in, who wanted to have friends, who wanted these friends. And so he submitted himself to the abuse, to the humiliation, hoping that they would like him, hoping that he could be a part of their movie, hoping that he could be a part of their lives. Now, I know that's a very, very extreme case, but can you relate to it somehow? Can you relate to that impulse that says, I want you to like me, I want you to accept me, I want to be in your orbit, I want to be in your life, so I'll do what I have to, I'll pretend if I have to, I'll lie if I have to, I'll fake it, I will even allow you to humiliate me. Just let me be a part of your movie. I know maybe your experience is not as extreme as that young 19-year-old. But if you've ever sought to make others the center of your world and you've, all, and you've sought to, to insert yourself in their orbit so that you could just, just enjoy being around them, you might know what it feels like to end up demeaned and hurt and ultimately rejected 
and wondering, why did I care so much about this person in the first place? Why did I let them do this to me? Why, why did I care so much about being a part of that group, that friend group, whatever it is? You see, making yourself the center of your life is sad and pointless. Making someone else or others the center is downright dangerous. The gospel shows us that there's a third way, another way. You see, Jesus, Jesus, who's at the center of this gospel, he's the only one who deserves, who's worthy of us saying, my life is all about you. I want to be a part of your story. See, there's no danger. There, there's, there's safety in saying, I don't want to have my own movie. I want to be a part of your story, Jesus. I want to be a part of the narrative, the, 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 the plot that you're writing, where you are at the center because you're welcoming me in. You're willing to welcome me in. You, you're willing to make me a real integral part of what you're doing through history. I want to be a part of that. You see, the gospel is an invitation to view yourself the way John viewed himself in relation to Jesus. It's invitation. Your role is not, the, and my role is not the same as John the Baptist. His role was to come and prepare the world for Jesus, to prepare the way. That's not our role. But we can still, like John, see ourselves as part of a much bigger story that's not about us. We can see ourselves in relation to him. We're going to see, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus calling disciples to follow him. And he's basically saying, when he says, follow me, he's teaching them, he's training them to live a life that's centered on him, and they find they find adventure, certainly, and they find struggle and suffering. Ultimately, they find eternal life. He transforms the trajectory of their lives. We're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark, him, uh, Jesus uh, healing people, rescuing people. He, he's, he's displaying so much power, so much authority, and he's also displaying so much compassion. It just pours out. And as we read through, we have to keep asking ourselves, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to respond to what Jesus is showing me about himself? Because, because it re- requires a response. The gospel, this news, all the news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Yes, it's an announcement, but it's also an invitation to stop seeing yourself as the center of your life. Stop seeing others at the, as the center. To stop ruling yourself or stop allowing others to rule you. Rule over your expectations of yourself, your emotions. But instead, to see Jesus as the only one who's worthy, for you, worthy of your complete loyalty. That, that you can actually put your identity, your purpose, you can find it all in him. And then you can know him and learn from him and serve him and tell others about him. The gospel we'll see is an invitation to experience the freedom of saying, my life gets its purpose and meaning from you, Jesus. It's all about you. And so as we go through the Gospel of Mark over the next several months, I want to invite you to, to, to think and ask yourself that question. Based on what I'm seeing from Jesus in here, what I'm seeing about him, is he worthy of my trust? Is he worthy of my affection, my loyalty? 
Is it safe for me to stake everything on him? And to see him as the center, does he deserve that from me? And I hope that the more and more we we investigate and we look at this gospel, the more and more we'll see the true Jesus and come to a wise conclusion about whether or not he deserves to be at the center of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the simplicity and the vastness of the gospel. Jesus, we thank you for inviting us, calling us to see you for who you are. Give us eyes to see the reality of who you are and our need for you and the inadequacy of everything else that we try to build our lives around. In your name we pray. Amen.